So good afternoon. This is Aaron Bauer with the Yale Neurology Exam Prep Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about rapidly progressive dementias, and I'll be joined today by Dr. Volpe, one of our amazing clinicians who works out of the Western VA and here at the Yale New Haven Hospital. How are you doing today, Dr. Volpe? Uh, doing great. Glad to glad to be here. Fantastic. So just to kind of outline a little bit of how we are going to structure today's talk for the rapidly progressive dementia, we're mostly going to be focusing on kind of differential considerations and maybe doing a deeper dive on some of the neurodegenerative considerations. In the beginning, we will talk a little bit about the loose kind of definition for rapidly progressive dementia and the history that is really important in approaching this problem and defining the problem. And then at the end, we'll have a brief discussion on just some of the diagnostic considerations that one could send, at least in the beginning of this sort of workup. And this will be guided by most of the differential that we'll kind of discuss through the rest of this talk as well. So with that said, Dr. Volpe, when you see a patient, what are the things in your head that you really want to go through and particularly on history that would have you concerned for a more rapidly progressive process? Yeah. So the key, as it is in so many neurologic diagnoses, is being is uh, asking uh, the right questions in the right way. And so here, as in many other diseases, neurologic diseases, timing, you know, the, the onsets of the symptoms is, is going to be the most important part. Okay. So we know that patients that we're concerned about having a rapidly progressive dementia, we're concerned that they have relatively abrupt change in some realm of cognitive or behavioral function. And so we generally would define the, you know, in terms of the timing, we're thinking about either acute or subacute types of changes. And so when you're taking the history, you have to be very specific about how you ask these questions and how you ask about the timing. Uh, very often people can be vague about memory or cognitive or behavioral types of symptoms. But in, in the case of a rapidly progressive dementia, actually, usually the, the family is, is quite concerned because it, because it came on relatively rapidly. So you want to try to determine, is this something that has been changing over days? Uh, is it, has it been changing over weeks or months? And that's really what we're thinking about. If it's something that is changing over the course of days, we sometimes even see that with, uh, with uh, CJD. It could change that rapidly in some cases. In other situations where we're looking at an autoimmune or paraneoplastic or limbic encephalitis type of picture, uh, that's usually over weeks or maybe months. Okay, so my, my main uh, point that I'm trying to drive home here is be very, very specific about how you ask about the timing. When did this start? What did you first notice? And uh, did it progress relatively rapidly at that point? Uh, so, so I would say the timing is the most important. All right. So definitely keying into days, weeks, months being the most important kind of timeline when thinking about these more rapidly progressive processes. Mm -hmm. Are there certain cognitive patterns that you look for or certain questions that you can get at on history to really help guide where somebody's deficit is? Yeah. Well, so first of all, so many times when we see an acute change in cognitive or behavioral function, it's because of delirium, probably the most common uh, cause of that. So, you know, we, we want to be making sure that uh, uh, there's a thorough medical evaluation that's, that's, that's undergone, as well as uh, lab, basic lab tests that are being sent, uh, searching out for infectious causes. So we want to be ruling out delirium. But in terms of uh, some specific neurobehavioral symptoms that we look for, uh, we often may see cortical signs. People may be having an acute onset of some visual spatial problems, aphasia types of symptoms, language. Uh, sometimes it's purely just a, a memory change that is uh, kind of alarming. 
where it's, it has this relatively rapid onset. So if it's somebody who has a dementia like Alzheimer's, it's something that happens very slowly over time. Whereas in these patients, they have memory problems that came on very quickly. So I would say, you know, we look for memory changes, personality or behavioral changes, sometimes cortical types of symptoms, as I mentioned, of a relatively rapid onset. We also need to look for a cerebellar signs, you know, a rapid onset of ataxia, and uh, even sometimes brain, brainstem signs that come on rapidly. So definitely keeping things broad in order to make sure we're not missing anything is always a great approach. Right. And then I think one thing that I've always struggled with a little bit, especially in framing a patient that's new, uh, do you have any tips or tricks on kind of getting a good baseline function, baseline education type of history out of either a patient or their family? Yeah. I mean, I sometimes if the patient or family is not being entirely clear about how they're giving the history, if they're a vague historian or if they're a tangential historian, uh, I try to narrow it down. So if I'm talking to the family, you know, when, when the patient maybe can't give the history and they're not really uh, uh, narrowing it the way I want them to, I'll go back and I'll say, you know what, can you take me through uh, what a normal day for them would be? Tell me about when they wake up in the morning and what do they do for their routine? And then they start telling me that. And I might stop them at a certain point and say, how has that changed now? How has their routine changed? Tell me about what you've noticed that is the most concerning to you. If you have a conversation with them, do they forget it within five minutes? I might you know, make it more specific. I might say, do they seem to not care about you or about things that they used to care about, lacking empathy? You know, If they're not giving me specific enough answers, I'll ask very specific questions. And sometimes I'll start that by talking about what is their normal routine like and how is that different now. I also might ask if this is a younger individual, I might ask about what's going on at work. Have there been any problems where there are complaints about behaviors at work? You know, in a work environment, that's where you have to be on your best behavior. And sometimes that's very different than your behavior at home. So sometimes I try to ask, how, how has work been? Any, any complaints, any problems that the supervisor has brought up? I try to be very specific in, in those ways. Gotcha. No, that's a really wonderful way to kind of approach these problems. I think it can be a little bit difficult, especially as someone early in training, trying to get a history that can be complex like that, especially when there are subtle changes. So I really like your approach here about the normal routine, things that have changed and they're, you know, especially at work, that's definitely one I'm going to add to my back pocket now. Are there any other big things that you look for in terms of defining and approaching this problem on history? Yeah, I mean, I think we we covered that mostly. Maybe I neglected to highlight the the neuropsychiatric aspects that you want to, to look for. So I guess you could categorize things into, you know, behavioral slash neuropsychiatric changes, which would include personality changes, even psychosis, psychotic types of symptoms. So that's one category. And then you can cover more of the uh, cortically based changes that we discussed before, language changes, visual spatial changes, uh, even neglect type of syndromes, you know, so uh, the more neurologic cortical based symptoms, and then uh, maybe cerebellar brainstem, maybe that you want to break it down into those uh, three areas would be helpful. Gotcha. So when approaching this, can really putting these symptoms into buckets. So the neuropsychiatric, the more cognitive based, and then a little bit more of kind of those more basic functions that are more localizable to the brainstem and cerebellum. Mm -hmm. Okay, fantastic. I think that does a really good job of framing at least how we would, you know, approach these patients and kind of defining um, what we are looking for and what we're talking about with a rapidly progressive dementia. So with that said, I think now we can kind of delve into the meat of this talk today, which is really going to be about the differential diagnosis of rapidly progressive dementia. Going through the literature for reviews on this, there is one acronym that kind of came up a few times uh, when I was researching, and it was uh, vitamin D which highlights 
at least some of the big buckets that people think about for rapidly progressive dementia. Essentially, vitamin D stands for vascular, infectious, toxic, metabolic, autoimmune, mitochondrial slash malignancy, iatrogenic, neurodegenerative. S is a bit of a grab bag, so seizures, structural, even sarcoid. Then demyelinating is the last one that is generally considered there for the vitamin D acronym. At this point, we're going to go through each of these buckets. Some will spend a little bit more time doing deep dives on specific um, etiologic considerations that we maybe haven't covered before. And other ones will just kind of discuss broad swaths of information uh, just so we can get through each different subcategory and leave a little bit of time at the end to discuss some diagnostic approaches based on this differential that we set. All right. So the first one that we'll talk about will be vascular. There's a few big chunks that we can talk about. There's certain stroke syndromes acutely can lead to some cognitive deficits that are a little bit more general and could be seen and thought of as almost a dementia-like pathology. These are usually going to be thalamic or colossal stroke from what I could see from literature. Outside of that, Moving to some more atypical vascular pathologies, we can think about cerebral venous thrombosis can lead to some subacute presentations that may be a little bit odd, maybe a little atypical. And then we can also think about posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome, so PRESS. So these are our hypertensive patients coming in in an encephalopathic type of presentation, so very acute altered mental status um, that sometimes can be a little bit prolonged, um, or at least more prolonged than one would expect. And that will obviously be seen on MRI. We generally see those flare hyperintensities a little bit more posteriorly dominant so in the parietal and occipital lobes, maybe a little bit of a flavor of some visual symptoms as well. Then we can get into more of the degenerative processes. So we can think about cerebral amyloid angiopathy. And these people are kind of on a spectrum of Alzheimer's and amyloid pathology that we'll talk about a little bit moving forward. And then we can think about more inflammatory vascular processes. So we can think about primary CNS vasculitis. So it's going to be, you know, not necessarily a secondary vasculitic process, but a primary CNS vasculitic process, which, albeit more rare, is definitely a concern for somebody who's coming in with subacute burden of neurologic deficits that have just kind of been accumulating over time. Um, and then along that spectrum of kind of cerebral amyloid angiopathy, we can also think of more inflammatory related pathology, such as A-beta amyloid related angiitis or ABRA. Do you have any other additions there, Dr. Volpe? Yeah, I just wanted to mention, uh, you know, at the beginning when you met, when you said uh, certain types of strokes can be located in, in areas of the brain that can cause uh, neurobehavioral or cognitive symptoms. That's something that I see relatively frequently, and it is good to highlight the fact that many thalamic uh, strokes, I think we're used to seeing thalamic strokes mainly causing sensory, hemisensory uh, syndromes. Those are the most common because, uh, you know, those symptoms are very clear and obvious and it's unilateral. And if you have a stroke to the dorsal medial nucleus of the thalamus, especially Sometimes we have bilateral strokes if you have a certain vascular anatomy of those two nuclei. But even if you have a unilateral dorsal medial nucleus stroke, you know, it definitely causes behavioral types of symptoms, uh, maybe some apath- apathetic symptoms, sleep behaviors. So very often I have seen patients with altered mental status and, uh, you know, they can't figure out why they don't have any focal neurological signs. And often as a neurologist, we would say, well, you know, I'm not sure what the utility of an MRI would be in this case. 
But it's the type of thing where you're doing a consult on a patient on another service and they can't figure out why they're having altered mental status. And, um, you know, many times in those situations, I have seen, you know, thalamic strokes uh, being the cause. So I just wanted to highlight that. Also, anterior nucleus of the thalamus is involved in memory surface. So, so I just wanted to mention that. Oh, no, that's a fantastic addition. I think the thalamus for a lot of us neurologists and particularly in training is a bit of a black box at times, given the just diversity of all of the subnuclei. So outside of VPL and VPM for sensory, it's definitely good to touch on the dorsomedial and more anterior aspects that are frequently overlooked. So moving on to the next bucket, we are going to talk briefly about infectious. For infectious etiologies, these are generally going to have a tempo that may be more acute, uh, so more days to week. Um, there may be some that have a little bit more of an intensity, of course, and there may be certain aspects of a patient, be immunosuppression, that may put them at a different echelon in terms of your clinical suspicion for an infectious process. But overall, we're going to be thinking about this more in those patients that come in a little bit more acutely, a little bit more severely. Uh, clues on history that may tie you into an infectious etiology, more general symptoms, fevers, myalgias, meningeal signs and symptoms. You can think about, you know, your good infectious kind of review of systems, you know, travel history, infectious contacts, their immunocompetency be it, you know, infectious, do they have malignancy, any sort of iatrogenic immunosuppression. So all of those are worth going through on history to kind of shunt you down one route or the other. In terms of some specific etiologies, one that kind of comes up a little bit more frequently than others would be viral processes, particularly the herpes viruses with some of their tropisms for the mesial temporal lobes can lead to some acute to subacute memory and cognitive systems and signs. Um, the ones that we see most Frequently, HSV, EBV, CMV, HHV6, those are a little bit more in immunocompromised patients. But definitely HSV and VZV would be common ones to think about and would be worth screening, especially if you see related flare abnormalities of the mesial temporal structures on imaging. Some of the more totally progressive viruses, you can think about arboviruses if we're talking about the right time, and we've discussed them at length in a recent infectious podcast. Similarly, we talk about subacute sclerosing panencephalitis, so SSPE. This is more in the setting of a slow but very persistent measles infection, middle-aged adults, uh, more commonly in children. Um, we've talked about that a little bit as well before. In terms of bacterial etiologies, um, one that generally will be screened for during any of these sort of workups is going to be syphilis, so treponema pallidum. Usually we're thinking about it in the tertiary sense, so neurosyphilis itself. There will be considerations for maybe Lyme disease, given your geographic location. Um, us here in the Northeast definitely have to think about it more, more so than some others. And then Bartonella and Whipples. Um, I will want to just say like a brief kind of overview of Whipples as it's one that maybe we don't get to discuss as often. So this is a bacteria T. Wapelli. Generally, they're coming in with, you know, arthralgias. They're pretty migratory, pretty profound weight loss, diarrhea, steatitosis, and abdominal pain. Neurologically, in about 10 to 40% of these patients, uh, there will be pretty profound cognitive dysfunction, mostly disorientation and memory impairment. Um, and then there's going to be this one almost like pseudomonic finding called oculomasticory myorrhythmia which is essentially these rhythmic movements of the eyes with the convergence um, with any concurrent contractions of the masticatory muscle. And they'll additionally have some other neural ophthalmologic issues. Usually it's a supranuclear vertical gaze palsy. They'll have some cerebellar ataxias and myoclonus, but that's a syndrome that is at least comes up on tests occasionally and is probably worth knowing at least those kind of key features 
like profound weight loss, diarrhea, and this oculomasticatory myorrhythmia, I think are pretty pretty important, at least to worth know going into test. Outside of this, we're thinking more about some atypical infections that are slowly progressive, um, and particularly in patients who may be immunocompromised in the setting of like HIV. Those we consider tuberculosis, toxoplasmosis, cryptococcus, um, definitely progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy or PML. Those are patients, you know, with the virus, associated virus being the JC virus. Usually we'll see that in AIDS patients, are very profoundly immunocompromised individuals. Um, but also from a neurologic standpoint, you know, we do have a lot of immunomodulatory therapies that do put patients at rest, um, such as nadalizumab in our MS patients. So it's definitely one worth knowing. That's usually going to be a presentation that would be within the rapidly progressive dementia. So a lot of behavioral cognitive decline, they can have seizures, and also focal signs with a lot of cortical visual impairment or even hemiparesis in the beginning. Outside of that, HIV in itself, can lead to a dementia process. Um, usually we can see that even just in HIV-associated dementia, and this is attributed to direct HIV infection within the brain and then consequent neurodegeneration. Um, and this is usually kind of a severe, rapid, more subcortically predominant dementia from what I could see. Yeah, I would just add to, to that, uh, you know, that, that in um, HIV-positive individuals, they, they often will develop a, a slower you know, this is if it's a direct uh, infection, as you said, uh, that it's rapids, okay? But there could be a slower sort of subcortical cognitive impairment that can occur in HIV individuals who are who are receiving treatments, you know, who are well-treated, that it would be much more uh, mild and slower subcortical type of deficits. And when we say subcortical, it's, you know, affecting white matter. Uh, and, and specifically what happens is they have cognitive slowing is the main manifestation of that. And uh, they, they have uh, slowly evolving gait abnormalities because of those mm. white matter ways. So we, we do see a slower change. Also with HIV, of course, there are other things that could contribute, you know, if they develop intracranial uh, athero, uh, you know, that could be indirectly affecting other white matter. So I just wanted to mention that about the HIV. HIV is definitely an all-encompassing type of diagnosis. So it will have far reaches outside of, you know, every organ, especially the brain, and especially with a good amount of time. Moving on to the next letter in our acronym here is going to be toxic metabolic. So this we've kind of talked a little bit at length in a recent podcast as well, but there are a few that we can kind of touch base on here. In terms of heavy metals, this is at least a screen that can be done. There will obviously be some patients, you know, occupationally or where they're located may be a little bit more at risk than others, but we can consider lead, mercury, or arsenic more commonly metabolic derangements. So classically, we can think of people with really bad hypercalcemia, hepatic encephalopathy, hypoglycemia, and thyroid dysfunction can all pretty commonly, at least, contribute to alterations in mental status and may contribute to a uh, rapidly progressive dementia-type syndrome. In terms of vitamins, one that wanted to make sure we talk about is always thiamine. So this classically with that Wernicke's encephalopathy, be it a subacute dementia with confusion, They'll have their ophthalmoparesis, ataxia, and if progressive, can lead to persistent memory dysfunction, and that's when we're getting more to the Korsakoff-type syndrome. Uh, outside of that, drug use and a good substance screen is always, you know, a relevant thing to do in a lot of patients and a lot of counseling, especially in terms of Wernicke's of any concomitant alcohol use, particularly opiates are a good one to screen for as well. Kind of within the metabolic bucket, but a little bit more distinct would be, you know, at least worth a consideration would be Wilson's disease. So that's our autosomal recessive uh, disorder. 
usually seen more in young adulthood, even childhood at some, in some cases. Uh, the mutation, just so everyone can hear it, ATP7B, leading to essentially abnormal copper accumulation. And it's a little bit predominantly accumulated in the brain, in the liver, and can be seen in the cornea. Everyone, I'm sure, remembers the wonderful Kaiser Fleischer rings that can be seen on the slip lamp evaluation. Neurologically, we would see a lot of extrapyramidal movement disorders. Uh, they'll have disexecutive function, amnesia, and the development of some profound neuropsychiatric symptoms as well. So after toxic metabolic, we will talk briefly a little bit about autoimmune conditions, uh, particularly autoimmune encephalitis. So we've kind of had other lectures that have been a little bit more in-depth, at least in this case, just as a reminder, these are going to be your antibody-mediated processes. So we're thinking more self-surface versus intracellular, bundling them into more perineoplastic or, you know, primary autoimmune conditions. Some of the more common ones that will come up, you could consider LGI-1, AMPA-related um, encephalitis, and particularly NMDA encephalitis um, are going to be probably the more common ones that will be seen and would present more with a process consistent with a you know, rapidly progressive dementia. And outside of that, just in the autoimmune bucket itself, there are a lot of rheumatologic conditions that, albeit our primary rheumatologic, will also have central nervous system involvement, um, particularly lupus and Sjogren's can have some pretty predominant central nervous system effects that could cloud this and would at least want to be a consideration when approaching these patients, especially in a patient who may be predisposed to autoimmune inflammation, be it someone with type 1 diabetes, known Hashimoto's. Those are definitely people that you'd want to have your at least sensors up and a lower threshold to kind of send these workups as well. The next one would be mitochondrial or malignancy. So the mitochondrial diseases are a pretty wide talk in their own right. One that I wanted to talk about a little bit more commonly is going to be MILOS, so mitochondrial encephalopathy, lactic acidosis, strokes, and leukoencephalopathy. Generally, for the mitochondrial diseases, the inheritance is going to be maternally driven as we're getting our essentially mitochondrial DNA through our mothers. The neurologic features, more generally speaking, would be myopathies, neuropathies, ophthalmoplegias, ptosis, seizures, and ataxia. Non-neurologic features that are kind of shared across a lot of these um, are going to be people of, you know, they'll have a little bit of a short stature. They may have associated diabetes, cardiomyopathies, even cardiac conduction deficits overall, and deafness. So really just a lot of organs and tissues that are metabolically active, metabolically demanding, are going to be more effective in this um, than other areas of the body. In terms of MILOS specifically, some of the classic symptoms that come up on tests and even clinically are going to be headaches. They'll have a headache history, they can have a history of partial seizures, the short stature, muscle weakness, exercise intolerance, the deafness, diabetes, but also this kind of slowly progressive dementia it usually is described as subacutely, but can occur acutely in setting of stressors. And then they'll have some essentially these reoccurrent neurologic episodes, often with some recovery back to baseline, but not quite all the way. There will be this general accumulation of burden with time. Some of the imaging that comes up for MILOS that may be tested if an image is shown. Uh, there'll be these T1 hyper intensities kind of in the deep nuclei. You'll see T2 hyper intensities almost diffusely. So they'll have T2 hyper intensities in the cortex, the deep nuclei, the white matter, and that really gets at the leukoencephalopathy aspect of the name. Occasionally, you'll also see some cortical ribboning kind of getting more, you know, those metabolically demanding areas of the brain. Yeah, I just want to add there how you said about the recurrent neurologic episodes. Um, 
that where they have some recovery sometimes that 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 really i guess we don't see a ton of these cases uh, right but generally when when i have seen them that's the real challenging part you know because sometimes they're uh, presenting with those symptoms and uh, there's this fluctuating nature of it and there there may be some personality changes that are slowly happening and in a couple of cases it's it's uh, types of neuropsychiatric symptoms that one may think, well, this person is quite anxious or depressed, and it might make you think that there may be a functional neurological disorder, you know, but with these syndromes, though, especially for mitochondrial, you know, they do usually have these, like the diabetes and the deafness, uh, that that could be very helpful, uh, you know, that they have some other metabolic problems and the weakness, you know, they may have some more objective findings. So I just think that the neuropsychiatric presentation of these can be can be very tricky sometimes. Yeah, definitely not the most common diseases by any means, but definitely wants to keep at least those kind of illness scripts in the head so you have those associations when it does come up. Then within the mitochondrial malignancy, obviously a lot of different malignancies can metastasize to the brain, can lead to pretty diffuse involvement. Um, You can have primary CNS tumors, GBMs that may lead to an almost subacute dementia-type process predominantly, especially more of those frontal tumors or even parietal, if we're thinking more about facial deficits. You can think about primary CNS lymphoma a little bit, you know, less common, but definitely worth a consideration. And then even more rare would be intravascular lymphoma, which has been characteristically a chameleon for many of different things, and usually is a pretty delayed in diagnosis, and these patients will accumulate burden with time. One concept that I didn't really hear a lot about and don't really see a lot about, but wanted to mention would be lymphomatosis cerebri, which is kind of a rarer variant of primary CNS lymphoma. And this has a lot of very just diffuse infiltration of tissue, not necessarily any discrete masses where you think about with CNS lymphoma, like that more classically ring-enhancing lesion. So this is a little bit different. And moving on to iatrogenic, any patient that you're coming in, especially with this problem, it's going to be very good for you to go through a medication list with them. There's going to be, you know, some patients definitely come in with very high burden and certain medications may predispose people to a little bit more of, you know, cognitive side effects that may be impacting in a detrimental way their ability to get on with their life and maybe will lead to some of the deficits that are being blurred together, especially in somebody who isn't necessarily with a lot of good cognitive reserve at baseline. Some of the more commonly implicated drugs, we're thinking opiates, anticholinergic drugs, antidepressants, anticonvulsants, especially if somebody's on a hefty regimen can lead to a lot of sedation and confusion. Always good to go through a pretty good list of supplements, especially nowadays, you know, people may be taking more and there may not be as much control over the substances that are put in them. It was definitely worth going through. I know I've had to look up a litany of different supplements that I've never heard of before in clinic uh, that definitely can be helpful. To briefly add here, I would say also that occasionally we see a patient who has you know, subacute cognitive or behavioral changes, and then we look at their meds and they're maybe on a lot of psych meds. I'm thinking of some patients I, I see on a psychiatric unit. And the, the question is, you know, they've been on this regimen for some time and, you know, now all of a sudden they've uh, changed. You know, we're probably, we, we will evaluate uh, with an MRI for an acute change, but sometimes I have seen that even the, if they've been on, you know, between two and five psychoactive medications, even if they've been on them for some time, sometimes you still have to say, you know what, it might be just now something has changed. And scaling back, I've seen, has sometimes resolved the situation. So you can't just say they've been on this for a long time, so that can't be it. Uh, I just wanted to mention that because I've seen that several times. Tough cases, especially, or obviously we have to work really closely with our psychiatric colleagues in order to figure out the appropriate way to scale back because it can be challenging. Our role as a neurologist in those cases is usually just to say that, you know, maybe we should think about this. I sometimes make a suggestion, maybe this one, but 
I, I usually say, you know, I don't know the, uh, you know, the long history of how they went on these medications and how they responded. So, you know, we, we often work with the psychiatrist, as you said, to, uh, uh, you know, think about what would be a way of changing some of these things slowly. So I think at this point, we will move on to the neurodegenerative processes. So I'll let Dr. Volpe talk a little bit more in depth with these, since they're going to be more of the bulk of the talk, because there is obviously a lot of overlap between people with more rapidly progressive dementias, and then ultimately falling along a spectrum of an actual dementia type process. I guess the first one that we have here would be the cortical basal degeneration. I would say that this is uh, toward the top of my list, if not the top of the list of neurodegenerative conditions that can present quite rapidly. In fact, I've had just recently three three separate cases where I had made that diagnosis and uh, uh, within, uh, I'd say, 12 to 18 months, the patients became much more severe and, and, and died. So yeah, as you say here, it's a, it's a, it's a, a tauopathy. And uh, usually the onset is when individuals are in their 50s or 60s, could be older than that. Some of them present with mainly a speech deficit initially. You know, they have a, a praxia of speech. They have motor problems of producing their speech. And then they will ultimately develop usually a very asymmetric Parkinsonism, where they have rigidity on one, one limb. And uh, that's, that limb also will develop a pretty severe apraxia. Some of these cases can present rapidly, as I mentioned before, whereas uh, usually the, the time course would be two to five uh, years or perhaps more in terms of the course of the disease. But uh, I would say cortical basal degeneration sometimes can, can have a more rapid course and, and, and in that sense would fall under the category of rapidly progressive. And then uh, uh, frontotemporal dementia probably would be the next in line in terms of a uh, neurodegenerative condition that could be a tauopathy or a TDP-43-opathy. Again, uh, the course of that would be expected to be up to five years or even longer sometimes, but I have seen cases of FTD that are presented at a young age and have had a rapid change over time. The caregivers will notice a change in personality. So FTD is one of the dementias where they don't initially have a memory deficit. They initially have a personality and behavior change. And sometimes that happens rapidly. So now the same thing could be said. Some cases of especially early onset Alzheimer's can have a rapid progression. And same with Lewy body. Don't see it as frequently in those conditions. But I want to mention for all of the four major subtypes of primary dementias, Alzheimer's, frontotemporal, vascular, and Lewy body. There are times when the, the patient presents to our clinic and the family tells us that they have been having changes over the course of several weeks or a couple of months. And this is a situation where you have to be very careful in your history taking, like we said at the beginning, because very often it actually turns out that as you talk to them for a longer period of time and say, well, tell me about, you know, a year ago, you know, did was there any, any uh, change in memory a year ago or two years ago? And they said, well, actually, they were beginning to struggle a little more at work. Or I was noticing that they were forgetting where they were going. Or once they got lost when they went out to the supermarkets, uh, in, in the you know, they got lost driving. And so my point is that sometimes it turns out that actually they've been having symptoms for two, three, four years. Sometimes the patient or the family are either in denial about it and they don't, they're trying not to notice it, or maybe they just are thinking, well, you know, he or she is getting older and, you know, this is sort of a natural course of aging and we kind of dismiss it or they use humor to dismiss it, you know, things like that. And so uh, very often the process has been going on for quite a long time 
but they're only noticing when it becomes more severe. And then it's, it seems like it's a rapid drop-off when actually it wasn't necessarily a rapid drop-off. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was really happening over years. And the other thing I want to mention about primary dementias and when it seems like a rapid onset, I see this especially in individuals who have been working all their lives and they're getting into their 70s or even 80s and they're still working at their job, their career that they've always had. And then finally, at some point, they decide it's time to retire. They're not having their normal routine that they've had for the past 50 or more years. And they have a very rapid change when that routine has, has been altered so radically all of a sudden. And then it, it does seem like a rapid change. So I just wanted to mention a few of those clinical scenarios that you have to be careful of. Oh, no, for sure. It's definitely one of the major aspects when approaching this problem, right, is actually making sure that that timeline is accurate because it really does change kind of the pathways diagnostically that one goes down. So it's definitely worth keeping all of those primary dementias in the differential when approaching somebody with what's reported as a rapidly progressive dementia, for sure. And then kind of within the neurodegenerative bucket, outside of the, you know, primary dementias, there's Creutzfeldt-Jakob's disease, which I think at this point is like one of the more prototypical rapidly progressive dementias. Would you be able to clue us in on some of these details, Dr. Volpe? Right. CJD is probably one of the first things that would come to our mind when we think of the prototypical rapidly progressive dementia. And as I mentioned uh, earlier, in CJD, you can see changes Sometimes from day to day, you can see changes happening, but you know, definitely over the course of weeks, you see very rapid changes. So the, the onset is usually uh, over the age of 50, I would say that's the most typical that we would see. It, it's highly variable. It's important to differentiate the different uh, subtypes and sporadic CJD is by far the most common one that we see. And uh, because of, you know, because of some you know, outbreaks that happened, especially, I think, in the 80s uh, in, in Britain, you know, there was the mad cow disease and the headlines that come out after things like that. You know, people uh, think then uh, that these diseases are, you know, mainly due to eating uh, infected meat, you know, af- affected meat, you know, some other environmental cause. But really, sporadic CJD is by far the most common. I believe it's over, it's, it's over 80%, probably at least 85% of cases are sporadic in terms of uh, all CJDs. And then you have uh, iatrogenic, you have uh, the uh, variant CJD would represent the the ones that could be from uh, what we call mad cow disease or, or kuru, you know, when people would be, there would be cannibalism, uh, uh, including eating the brain, and, and that would cause, uh, cause a CJD. Uh, and then there are genetic variants of CJD, which that probably, the genetic probably makes up about 10%. The variant probably makes up a very, very small percentage, you know, maybe on the order of 1% of the cases that we see. So for CJD, the underlying pathophysiology is going to be, it's a prion disease, um, which essentially is, you know, an infectious proteinaceous particle. Um, In this case, it's involving the human prion protein, which is generally abbreviated PRP. Uh, There are going to be different isoforms. So everybody has a normal isoform PRPC. And then you have your disease-causing isoform or PRP-FC. And the FC kind of stands for scrappy, which is kind of like one of the first spongiformis cephalocytes seen in like sheeps and goats. It was called scrappy disease. Um, and it's a, it's a fatal prion as well. But that, at least in human cases, that's kind of how the disease-causing isoform is kind of denoted. Essentially, what happens is this disease-causing isoform triggers the normal PRP protein to convert 
to this infectious isoform, leading to a cycle of you know self-propagation, accumulation, and ultimately neurodegeneration. Thinking about like testing, generally what will be seen on pathology is this spongiform change, followed by gliosis and pretty profound neuronal loss. Clinically, you'll see a few different variants. Classically, it's described as acute progressive cognitive dysfunction. Dr. Volpe has alluded to it can be very, really quite rapid and can be progressive even over just the course of days with a lot of burden accumulation. There will be uh, myoclonus, like a startle myoclonus is something that's mentioned. You'll see these periodic sharp wave complexes on EEG, and this can progress to the point of almost an akinetic mutism-like state kind of at the end stage of the disease. There are a few variants of CJD. There's one called the Heidenheim variant, which is characterized by a lot of visual symptoms. They'll have defective color vision, cortical blindness. Some may come in with Anton syndrome. So like what we think of when we have bilateral occipital strokes. So that type of cortical blindness. Um, You'll have cognitive dysfunction, neuropsychiatric symptoms. um, And those sharp wave complexes on EEG will be more posteriorly dominant. And then there's the Brownwell-Oppenheimer variant which is characterized by actually just a lot of cerebellar symptoms and a progressive dementia. In thalamic degeneration, so this actually kind of along the lines of like a sporadic fatal insomnia, these people will have like a lot of autonomic dysfunction, psychiatric symptoms, and sleep disorders, um, which kind of makes sense coming out of a lot of those central generators, if you will. And then I guess moving on, maybe you'd be able to touch on at least some of the key diagnostics we see with with CJD. Uh, so, um, yeah, certainly, I, I believe the uh, really the MRI is the most important part of the diagnostic workup because it will have the um, you know the cortical ribboning that you'll find, and uh, I believe that the criteria would would speak about you know seeing that in uh, two areas of of cortex and especially areas that are not frontal. It does affect the frontal cortical ribbon, but sometimes there's artifacts on DWI imaging that uh, makes you think there's cortical ribboning, but it, there's not. So I think uh, looking at the temporal and parietal regions is uh, a little more helpful and specific. So most cases we'll have this cortical ribboning. Some of the, some of the uh, variants may have a little bit more of deep nuclei, hyperintensity. And so you might see the medial thalamus lighting up. The, the uh, pulvinar uh, sometimes of the, of the thalamus can, can light up in some of these. Okay, so, so MRI is uh, probably the most important. And uh, you mentioned EEG, that uh, you, you may see the periodic sharp wave complexes and uh, in CSF testing, you know, we're usually going to, to, to do that uh, for confirmation. And so they would have, uh, you know, uh, 1433 protein. And then the uh, confirmation is the, the, you know, the real-time testing. So what they do is they, they sort of look at the proteins in the CSF and they, tra- they see if it is going to bind to a, uh, the, another sort of prion protein in a way that would misfold, uh, cause the misfolding, and then it ends up causing a fluorescence. Uh, so that is a way to confirm the diagnosis. It's, you know, very uh, specific for, for CJD. Yeah, no, so MRI, EEG, CSF testing with RT-Quick being the most kind of specific thing for the disease. Yeah. I, going through this is actually interesting. I, I actually didn't know a ton about what 1433 was. Um, and it really is just something that is produced in the setting of really rapid tissue to damage in the CNS. And you'll see other elevations with like S100B, neuron-specific enolase, but that was at least one that was a little bit more, I think, related to the diagnosis, maybe not still specific to that underlying pathogenesis, 
but was something that I've always had associated in my head with CJD, but never really knew the the underlying association. Yes. So moving on to the next letter in our kind of acronym is going to be the, the mixed bag of things. So add the S. So seizures, sarcoid, structural. So neurosarcoid classically is going, it can do anything. Um, it can, you know, frequently for them, cranial nerve palsies, headaches, ataxia, weakness, and even just mild cognitive impairment. Um, and some of these cases can present with something that's a little bit more prominently and occasionally even along the spectrum of a rapidly progressive dementia. It probably won't be the first consideration, but is something at least to keep in the back of the head, especially if imaging is a, li- a little bit more consistent with that. Seizures for sure, uncontrolled, non-convulsive seizures can definitely lead to an acute or even subacute altered mental status or even just, you know, impaired cognition and confusion. Um, and then structurally, some things that may come up, you can think about subdural hematomas, something that's been there a little bit more, even acute on chronic. Um, you can think of processes that are leading to a solely progressive hydrocephalic process. And then in the back of their head, there's always the consideration for normal pressure hydrocephalus or NPH, which can kind of give you your wet, wacky and wobbly type of pathophysiology. Uh, so that's kind of your grab bag of the F in vitamin D. In terms of the last one, demyelinating, these would be a little bit more atypical, particularly we'd be thinking in adults more multiple sclerosis and it's, you know, it's kind of cousins, so NMO and MOG. But usually speaking, these they can have some multiple cognitive domains affected. This would have to be an usually a more aggressive phenotype of an underlying process. They'd have to have a much, you know, higher burden of disease than would be typical. Maybe a little bit more commonly, especially in a younger population, you can think more about ADEM, so acute disseminated encephalomyelitis. Uh, that can progress definitely more with a more rapid picture of symptoms over the course of a few days and maybe a little bit more distributed in the subcortical and the white matter that could lead to a more rapidly progressive dementia-like picture. But MS, NMO, MOG, more severe presentations of them can occasionally present with kind of these more multiple cognitive domains being affected. So it's definitely worth a consideration. That's really it going through. So we've talked kind of about the big buckets of differential considerations, talked about the vascular, the infectious, toxic metabolic, autoimmune. We have talked about our malignancies and mitochondrial, some of the iatrogenic considerations. We definitely discussed the neurodegenerative processes and then kind of the grab bag of seizures and structural etiologies and demyelinating conditions. So I think at this point, kind of to wrap things up is, you know, taking that differential and thinking about what is worthwhile sending, especially in the diagnostic workup of these rapidly progressive dementias. So Dr. Volpe, could you tell us a little bit kind of about how you approach this and maybe some studies that we can consider sending in patients? Maybe I'll speak in uh, generalities about these. And if you want to um, talk about some of the more specifics, uh, you know, you can also uh, jump in for that. But um, if somebody is coming in you know, with with uh, changes that have occurred over the course of days, weeks, or, or months, uh, relatively rapidly progressive symptoms, we want to be thinking about what we'll send in terms of our serum studies. First of all, we mentioned before we really need to be ruling out delirium, and so you know we're going to be doing very basic tests, basic serum tests of. Uh, a metabolic panel and a CBC, uh, make sure we're not missing something quite obvious or an, an infectious uh, source. And uh, then once we've uh, determined that that's really not the case, especially after we 
check those labs and get our history. Then we will, you know, expand the workup. And uh, the, the serum workup that we'll send will include looking for inflammatory causes, uh, you know. And so we want to include things like uh, ANA, ANCA, RF, and, and uh, other inflammatory uh, panels that we're going to send. Okay, so that's, that's important to look for. Uh, we always want to be checking for uh, HIV, HCV when we, uh, if we're considering whether there might be a Hashimoto's encephalitis picture, we should be sending antithyroperoxidase, antithyroglobulin antibodies as part of a more expanded workup for a rapidly progressive change. Usually in these cases, if we feel that uh, the evidence is not pointing to a longer more chronic change as we see in degenerative diseases, if we think that that's not the case, and we, we think that it's not a delirium, then we are going to be thinking about sending a, a paraneoplastic autoimmune encephalitis panel. And uh, that should be, I would say that if when I'm in the outpatient setting, I'm often sending a serum workup first. You know, I'll just do a serum paraneoplastic and autoimmune panel first. Depending on the severity of the symptoms, you know, I will usually then move on to getting a uh, getting CSF as well for those for paraneoplastic autoimmune. But if they're presenting in the inpatient setting, often we're going to be needing to get an LP in most of these patients. You know, we'll check uh, the the basic CSF studies, but we will include the fourteen three three and a confirmation test related to that viral panel fungal panel. And usually we're going to be checking cytology and flow cytometry. This would cover the broad uh, differential that, that we really spent most of this time uh, discussing. In almost every one of these patients, we're going to want an MRI of the brain. The tricky thing about the MRI of the brain is that uh, if it's not CJD, if it actually is turning out to be a limbic encephalitis picture, often we will not see any abnormalities on the MRI. Sometimes in limbic encephalitis, you will see T2 flare hyperintensities in the medial temporal regions or other limbic areas. And that can include the cingulate gyrus. It can include areas near the hypothalamus or even the thalamus in some cases. And on many occasions, we do not see any abnormalities on the MRI. So you need to continue to move on with those serum and CSF studies in those cases. Urine studies, uh, we always want to get a UA, of course, but uh, sometimes we're going to do some screening for heavy metals. And uh, as we saw when we talked about CJD, often the EEG can be helpful. EEG in many of these, many of these rapidly progressive dementias will be a lot more slowing encephalopathy picture, but sometimes you'll see it more specifically slowing in the temporal lobes. So it can be helpful, but of course it has more specific findings that we talked about for, for CJD. So an EEG is often going to be helpful. Also, in many rapidly progressive dementias, seizures are a part of the, of the presentation. So we want the EEG for that reason. You know, I would say less commonly, we would move if all of those studies are negative, but the, the patient clearly has a, uh, an encephalopathy, may think about a brain biopsy. Of course, you want to have a specific target, uh, something that you could see an area of inflammation uh, or change on the MRI to have a better yield, but it's relatively uncommon that, that we do brain biopsy, but it, but it does come up. So, um, so any other specifics that you wanted to uh, mention there, Aaron? No, I think that really does cover like the big buckets of things that we really discussed in the differential, I guess, in terms of like some additional imaging for more specific things, like in case we're very high concern for a malignancy, sometimes then we'll consider imaging CT, be it their chest or abdomen pelvis, testicular ultrasound in men, pelvic ultrasounds in women, especially if we're going down like an autoimmune path or a perineoplastic process. And then I guess if we're thinking more along those vascular or ischemic concerns, 
Sometimes we'll consider, you know, CTA imaging of the head and neck, echo, MRA, maybe even a DSA, depending on the concern for evasculitic process. But I think otherwise, you did a really great job covering some of the basic serum studies that we send, urine studies, um, what we're going to be looking at on CSF, and the need for both MRI and EEG for many of these processes. Yeah. And, and the, yeah, of course, thanks for mentioning about the, you know, we, we of course, are going to be doing uh, you know, cancer screening in, the, in these patients. Uh, so... Uh, uh, which which often may include a full body PET scan in some cases, but uh, starting out with the more basic chest, abdomen, and pelvis CT, testicular ultrasounds, uh, pelvic ultrasounds. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you so much for all of your help with this presentation. It was definitely an interesting one to read through, and hopefully, we were able to hit on some some key points that will be helpful for people moving forward and studying. So, thank you, Dr. Volpe. Much appreciated. Great. You're welcome. Glad to be here.